Amen. Praise the Lord. I want to um, start this evening in Luke chapter 22. I, um, I, I don't really have a message per se, but I want to share some thoughts. There's some thoughts that are stirring in my heart, and I want to share some things with you, and um, we'll find it together where the Lord takes us. Amen. Luke 22, beginning in verse 14, this is uh, talking about Jesus last night with his disciples at what we know of as the Last Supper. Verse 14, and when the hour was come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. And he said unto them with desire, great longings, what the word desire means there, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took bread and gave thanks and break it and gave it unto them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Likewise, also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament. The word testament is the word covenant. This cup is the new testament or the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you but behold the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table and truly the son of man goeth as it was determined but woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed and they began to inquire among themselves which of them it was that should do this thing now i've got a question i want to ask you folks what's missing in this story we've heard it Hundreds of times, maybe thousands of times, Mark and Matthew both give us account that is nearly exact to what this one uh, what this one says. Um, I thought about taking the time to go back and read each one of them, but I, I got to thinking there's really no point to say exactly the same things in every gospel. But what's missing in this story? Where are the disciples asking questions about what he means? Now, I want you to look back with me to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. And uh, I'm not sure where I'm going to start here. Mm. Uh, Let me bounce around to a couple of scriptures here. Verse 41, John chapter 6, verse 41. Then the Jews then murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this the Jesus, the son of Joseph, whom father and mother we know? How is it then that he said, I came down from heaven? Then Jesus, um, verse 47, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. Verse 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven, and if any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give him is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore strove against themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said, verse 53, notice this. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you shall have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life. And I will raise him up again at the last day. Um, well, let me just summarize rather than look for the individual scriptures. If you go down and read the rest of this story, and by the end of the chapter, everybody leaves Jesus. 
most of the followers, meaning the, the crowds outside of the disciples in the 70, the crowds are, are thinking that he's breaking the law of Moses by suggesting that people literally eat his flesh and drink his blood. And so it says, many turned away and walked no more with him from that day forward. So much so that Jesus went to the disciples and said, are you going to go away too? And the ringing endorsement that we get from Peter is that we don't have anywhere to go. Not, oh, master, we would never leave you. Like, where we're going to go. I guess we'll stay here. We don't have a plan B. Maybe that's a good thing. Following God, you shouldn't have a plan B, I guess. But now compare that, what he said in John six fifty three, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Compare that with what he said at the Last Supper. This is my bread, this is the set of the bread, this is my body which is broken for you. He said of the cup, this is the new covenant or testament in my blood. How is it that the disciples aren't asking any questions? Now, a lot of things have happened between John 6 and Luke 22, chronologically, in the ministry of Jesus. You remember in Matthew chapter 16 where Jesus asked um, the disciples, who do men say that I am? Then he asked him, who do you say I am? And Peter speaks up on behalf of all of them and says, well, we believe you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said, flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, Simon, but my father, which is in heaven. So Jesus is telling us that he didn't tell these people that he was the Messiah. In those small meetings that he had with his disciples, putting himself into them and teaching them and all the things that were involved in that. Jesus didn't apparently never stopped and said, now, wait a minute, you guys know I'm the Messiah, don't you? you? You do realize that's who I am, don't you? The only record we have of any time that he asked that was in Matthew 16. Who do you say I am? And Peter confessed him as the Christ. The fact that he said that flesh and blood had not revealed it unto them means that he didn't tell them. It was revealed from, from his Father in heaven. In other words, the Holy Ghost had quickened that to them, had made them to understand that's who Jesus is. But can you not see a difference between John 6, where everybody from the outside, or nearly everybody from the outside, turned around and left Jesus? The disciples were the last ones to consider it. Can you not see the difference between John 6 and Luke 22? What have they learned by the time they get to Luke 22? That enables them to accept what Jesus says without either trying to talk him out of it or peppering him with a series of questions that I would assume that they still have unanswered. We know that there were certain things that they didn't believe even after Jesus' death because when uh, one of the gospel accounts says that as soon as Jesus was raised from the dead, he upbraided his disciples. He appeared in the midst of them and he upbraided his disciples. That means he got onto them a little bit. He upbraided his disciples because they didn't believe that he said when he said he was going to be raised again the third day. So here in Luke 22, we've got the disciples in a position where Jesus is saying, now there's a lot of symbolism at the Last Supper. The cup that he picked up where he says, this cup, that's a very specific cup. He's offering them Elijah's cup, which the Jews believe that Elijah has to come before the Messiah appears. And so at every Passover meal, 
I guess they still do this. Uh, at least the Orthodox Jews, Jews do this. There was a specific cup that was for Elijah. When Jesus picks up that cup and says what he says, he's saying symbolically, he's saying, I'm the one that was foretold. They don't balk about that. There's no question raised. There's no, uh, there's no Peter standing up and saying, wait a minute, Jesus, you're picking up the wrong cup. That's not the one we're supposed to use. There's none of that. They simply accept what he says about the new covenant. Now, in our society, the Western world, if we haven't heard the preaching of Jesus shedding his blood for us and making a sacrifice for us so that we could be born again, if we've never heard that preaching or that teaching, what do we think he means? Would we have any clue what he meant? Would we even understand why he was saying it? Talking about the new cup or the new testament, the new covenant in his blood. Would we have any inkling as to what that was about? I think most of us would react like the the Jews did in John chapter 6. Where they said, this is crazy for him to be saying we can eat uh, eat his flesh and drink his blood. But the disciples don't bat an eye. No question. Even John at a later date, John tells us less about the communion ritual than any of the other three gospel writers. He fills in the blanks on other things that Jesus talked to him about. But John doesn't give us any inkling about it either. No questions whatsoever. Does that not seem strange to you? I mean, there's so much of everything else that they didn't understand and they didn't hold back about asking questions about the other stuff. Why are they silent on this? Folks, the answer, the only answer that satisfies that question is that they understood something about a blood covenant that we don't get. They understood something about a blood covenant, either the terms of it or what it represented that we have no experience with. Now, that would make sense because they're used to the ritual sacrifices of the lamb on the Day of Atonement and the the individual sacrifices that everybody was required to make throughout the year. They know that the Day of Atonement is all about blood being shed. They know that it's temporary. The results of God looking away from the sin of Israel and covering their sins for a one-year period of time until the next Day of Atonement. They understand that it's temporary, but they understand what the purpose is. They understand what it brings. They understand that it puts them back in a position of being God's covenant people and and keeping up their end of of the bargain, keeping the covenant until the next day of atonement comes around. Turn back with me to to, uh, Genesis chapter 15. Now, here's another thought I want to present to you. And these are things that... uh, Well, I guess more than anything, I'm sharing with you about how I think when I read the word. Here's how I think. I, don't only, I not only want to see what's there, I want to see what's not there. And I want, to, I want an explanation for why whatever's not there isn't there. Now, in Genesis chapter 15, 
These are some famous scriptures, at least famous to the Jews, concerning their father Abraham. Beginning in verse 1, it said, After these things the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Behold to me, thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thy own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars, or number the stars, in other words, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. Now verse 6 is huge. And he, speaking of Abraham, or Abram, and he believed in the Lord and he counted it unto him for righteousness. He's expressing his belief in God. The Hebrew word believe is, uh, is a lot more meaningful than when we talk about believing. And in fact, uh, in the, uh, the Western world, the modern day church in America, you almost have to define your terms when you talk about believing because that means so many different things to so many people. A lot of people think believing in, in God or believing in the word just means, yeah, I believe God said it or I believe it's true or I believe it contains truth. But the Bible identifies faith as taking hold of something, not just agreeing to it. Well, this Hebrew word means even more than that. The Hebrew, mean, the Hebrew word means to give yourself wholly to, W-H-O-L-L-Y, completely, to give over yourself completely. It's a word that's used in connection with partnership or fellowship to such a degree that you become one with somebody else. When it says Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness, it literally means he gave himself up unto God to become a part of him. It's a covenant term. So Abram believed in God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. But then he, said, he still has more questions. Believing in God doesn't mean all your questions are answered. Verse 7, the Lord said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees, Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? And he said unto him, take me a heifer. In other words, he gives him some instructions about making a sacrifice. Verse 18, it says, in the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, unto thy seed have I given thee this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates, and then talks about the other boundaries of the territory. So we see that God's making a covenant with Abram. Now, the disciples, even though they were unlearned and uneducated, what that really means is it doesn't mean they never had any education. It means that they haven't gone through the, the formal means of dedication of uh, education that people uh, received at the temple. See, there weren't any schools there, and so the, the, uh, uh, the education process was pretty much whatever your father told you and whatever your father taught you. It was the responsibility of the father in each household to teach the children. And so there were a variety of things, a number of things that they were teaching. They were teaching him whatever the father's trade was so that he could go into business or take over the business from his father. But there was also religious education. There was education concerning the law of Moses. 
Now, we would have to assume that the disciples, those that followed Jesus, since they weren't wealthy men and since they weren't of families of esteem, that they received just the basic information that everybody taught their kids in the home. But you get to somebody like Paul. Paul had not only that basic education, but then he went to what would be what we would consider to be university education, university-style education, to formal education at the temple, probably in Jerusalem. Paul talks a lot about this verse, verse 6, Genesis 15, verse 6. Paul talks a lot about Abraham. Now, when um, after the resurrection and the church begins to grow and things begin to, to increase and so forth, you know as well as I do that the Bible tells us that the, the religious leaders, Jewish leaders, went nuts. They're trying to come up with some kind of way to stop this because nobody's interested in the temple anymore. Nobody's interested in keeping the law of Moses anymore, at least not in the same measure or the same. Uh, well, let me say it this way. A lot of people have believed the preaching of Jesus, and so they're not putting the emphasis on the law of Moses anymore. Now, for the priesthood, if the law of Moses is fulfilled, what are they going to do? Sell shoes? So for them, it was everything. It was, it was not only a matter of religious doctrine. They didn't approach it from the standpoint of, is this true? They approached it from a standpoint of, I've got to protect my livelihood. I've got to protect the traditions of my family. You couldn't be a priest, certainly couldn't be a high priest unless you were of the right family of the tribe of Levi and that type of thing. So they're fighting for their survival. So this is not just a religious issue for them. This is not just a matter of, wait a minute, Paul, tell us about how Jesus fulfills the law. They didn't want to know. They didn't want to consider that that was a possibility. Because as soon as they do, if they admit that, who needs a high priest? We've got one in Jesus. We sure don't need them. You see the point I'm making? But when God handpicks Paul, meets him on the road to Damascus, and Jesus identifies who he is, and the fact that he's talking to him, and displayed a little taste of his power, to get his attention, there's no question in Paul's mind that he's alive. Of course he's alive. He's the one doing this stuff. He's the one talking to him. And part of the reason it seems to me that God picked Paul was that he had the formal education of the high priest himself. Now, he was of the tribe of Benjamin, so he couldn't be the high priest for Israel. But he was one of those, apparently... As he said, he was more zealous than anybody else concerning the things of God once he found out about Jesus and, and so forth. So he was one of those that the priesthood probably says, it's a real shame that this guy wasn't born of the tribe of Levi. If he had been, then he could take over the high priest's job, and he knows this stuff backwards and forwards, maybe even better than we do, meaning the, the other priests. So when God taps Paul, he knows exactly what he's getting. He's getting somebody that can see how the Old Testament is fulfilled in what Jesus said and did. He's picking somebody. He picks Paul, who he knows will eventually. We don't know how fast Paul grew spiritually. We don't know how quickly some of these things um, transpired. But we do know that Paul came to the point where he understood everything that Abraham did as a sign to us. 
He talks about Abraham's faith relative to the Galatians and to the Romans. The church at Rome, or church is at Rome, and the church is in the region of Galatia. He writes to the Jews about Abraham's faith. He understands now that he's born again, now that he's met Jesus, now that he understands why Jesus sacrificed himself. He understands how all those things tie in together. And thank God he was a good writer. He left us record of it too. So when it, the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 15 that Abram believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness, Paul understood what that meant. That's why Paul tried to explain to everybody in Galatians chapter 3 when he's getting known to the Galatians for turning away from uh, receiving by faith to adding Jesus to the law of Moses. He talks to him and he says, how did you get saved? You know you're saved. You know a change took place in your heart. How did you get that? Was that through keeping the law or faith in Jesus? And then he answers by saying, even as Abraham believed God. And it was counted in him for righteousness. Paul understood everything about what God intended from the beginning. He understood why God appeared to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 and makes a covenant with him about the land that they'll inherit. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17, we'll start in verse 1. And when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, I am the almighty God, walk before me and be thou perfect. And I will make my covenant between me and thee and will multiply thee exceedingly. If God already has a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, what's he talking about making another covenant for in Genesis chapter 17? This covenant has to do with different terms and different benefits. See, God didn't just appear to Abram when he was 75 years old and say, Abraham, you just won the jackpot. I'm going to make a covenant with you, and from this day forward, everything is about me and you together. He didn't do that. When he first appeared to him at age 75, he didn't make a covenant with him. He just said, follow me, go where I tell you to go, and I'll bless you, and I'll make you a blessing to nations, and I'll make, you, uh, I'll make your seed great. That's all he said. It was enough for Abraham to obey. Doesn't say anything about Abraham believing God, although we would have to assume that there's some measure of trust there if he's going to obey what God told him to do. But there's no landmark event where Abraham is is, uh, expressing his faith like he does here in Genesis 15 and he will again in Genesis 17. The first covenant God made with him had to do with the land that his seed would inherit. This covenant that he makes with him, and he tells him to take a heifer and take different animals and split them in the middle and so on and so forth. This covenant he makes with him has to do with his seed being born. Because in the time that's uh, transpired between Genesis 15 and Genesis 17, now Abraham is too old and Sarah along with him is too old for them to think uh, that having a child is possible anymore. We don't know how old Abraham was at Genesis chapter 15, but it's been some period of time because in Genesis 15, he's saying we don't have a child, which implies to me that they still were physically able or of an age where they could have had children. But by the time he gets to Genesis 17, that's gone. We're too old. What are we going to do now? 
And this is part of Abraham's faith process, part of his growth concerning trust and belief in God that God had to bring him to and he has to bring us to as well. Wouldn't it be great if you could just listen to enough of the word? Maybe it was 24 hours. If you get saved and listen to the word for 24 hours straight, all of a sudden you know everything that you need to know. You're in faith, you're growing, you're mature. That's it. Wouldn't that be great? I'd sign up for that. But that's not the way it works, is it? You learn little by little, line upon line, precept upon precept. And just about the time you think you know what you're doing, you see something in the word that comes alive to you and you say, my goodness, why didn't I see that all along? It's a step-by-step process. It was for Abraham too. So in Genesis chapter 17, God cuts another covenant or makes a covenant with him. Well, let's just keep reading. We stop with verse 2. I will make my covenant between me and thee and will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee. And thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be called Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee. And I will make thee exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee, and their generations for an everlasting covenant. To be a God unto thee, and thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee, and to thy seed after thee, the land wherein thou art a stranger, and all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant. Therefore, thou and thy seed after thee in their generations. This is my covenant. Notice he keeps talking about this thing called covenant. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your seed after you. Every man, child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin and it shall be a token of the covenant between me and you. Hardly anybody knows the story of of Stanley and Livingstone anymore. I remember when I was a kid hearing about the things, uh, but and and you know there may have been a little bit of information or a little bit of teaching that was done, but um, but Stanley and Livingstone, the story of those two guys, um, really helps us or helps me understand what the Bible is talking about when it speaks of covenants. Livingstone was a um, commissioned by the British government to go to Africa in, um, well, it was right after the the American Civil War was over. So it was about 1865, 1866, somewhere around there. Well, he went, he was a missionary. And so he went at the request of the, or at the the bidding, really, of the English government at that time because the English government wanted him. They knew that he was, uh, he was, want to evangelize and so forth. They didn't care about that. But they wanted him to map and chart the land of, uh, of Africa. There were probably some goals that they had in mind about uh, uh, adding to the imperial empire, the British empire at that time and so forth. But long story short, Livingstone goes to Africa and he drops off the map. They have no contact with him for four years. There's a certain period of time that he was there that they were getting regular contact from him, um, receiving contact from him. But then all of a sudden, he just disappears. So nobody knew what, what happened to the guy. Now, it was a well-publicized 
arrangement between the British government and, uh, and Livingstone. And so when, uh, when he goes missing, you know, I didn't think about it, think too much about it for the first six months or so, you know, Africa is a wild territory. Maybe he just couldn't get out to get any information to them. But after he started being missing for a year and then two years and three years and four years and like that, I think four years was the extent of the time that he was uh, off the grid, so to speak. Then people started petitioning the British government to send somebody in there to find him. Well, they wouldn't do it. They just elected not to do it. It became a real public thing. It was in newspapers at the time and so forth. And so there was an editor of the New York Herald that wanted to make Britain look bad. So he commissioned a journalist named Henry Stanley to go find him. And so he finally did in 1871, I believe it was. He finally, finally found him. But the thing that makes their story so unique and interesting and, and valuable as far as I'm concerned is that they kept journals. Both of them kept journals about what they found in Africa. What they found in Africa was that there was an alliance that people could make called a blood covenant, whatever the terms or names of the individual tribe's language gave it. It all came down to a blood covenant. Now, let me interrupt the story here long enough to tell you that there have been sociological studies done among unknown tribes. Every time a tribe would be identified or discovered or something like that, People would dig into their past and so forth. Almost without exception, every people have something like a blood covenant in their background. Every one of them. And these are tribes and peoples that are scattered to the four winds of the earth. And so it wasn't like one guy traveled from, one, from point A to point B and told people about a blood covenant and made something happen like that. This was something where people that had no interaction with each other at all tribes and people groups that had no interaction whatsoever had the same information about blood covenants. There may have been a degeneration that's taken place in some people groups, but it basically comes down to the same thing. Well, their only explanation for that is blood covenant was known before people started multiplying to the place where they started going in different directions. Blood covenants probably started in Genesis or in the, excuse me, started in the Garden of Eden. Many Bible scholars speculate. It's a pretty good speculation. I don't know if there's any way to prove it one way or the other. But after the fall of man, the Bible says God clothed them with animal skins. Well, how do you do that without killing an animal? And if he killed an animal, he probably taught them about sacrifice and the value of the shedding of blood. The Old Testament and the New Testament says without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. So this is something that happened from the very beginning. And as people grew and multiplied and scattered around the earth, they took that original knowledge or that, uh, well, that blood covenant that was part of their history in some way or another, however far back you can track. They took that knowledge with them. Well, when Stanley finally found Livingstone, among the people groups of Africa, they began comparing notes. And he, as I said, Stanley was a journalist, and so he wanted the story. He's there for a story. Because whoever gets the story, this is going to be big news and um, amass a great circulation and selling of papers and all this kind of stuff. It was a financial bu- uh, boom 
for the New York Herald when Stanley found him. He found out, Stanley found out that Livingstone had made a covenant with over 50 different tribes. And the way that that came about, and I should say, not only did Livingstone do it, but in the the several years that uh, Stanley was looking for him, searching for him, among all the continent of Africa, he wound up making um, several dozen covenants with people too. And it was always the same thing. There were always the same elements. And this became part of the, the, the buzz about the story because everybody's operating on pretty much the same thing. Every people group that they came across had, excuse me, had an understanding of blood covenants. And the blood covenant always involved three things. First, the giving of gifts. Second, the, the mingling of blood. And third, the memorial. Every blood covenant contains that. Stanley was in poor health or, or wound up in poor health not too long after he got there on the continent of Africa. And he had a, a fairly small expedition of people, guides and translators and helpers and so forth, that were traveling with him as he was looking for Livingstone. And they came to a place where there was a warring tribe right around the equator. And there was a warring tribe, fierce people, and, and they were really concerned uh, that they were going to be attacked and killed by this warring tribe. And so somebody in, living, in uh, Stanley's company asked him and said, why don't you make a covenant with the chief? He said, I don't know what that is. What are you talking about? And he said, uh, he, he asked, Stanley asked the guy, well, what's it, what does it entail? And he says, well, it entails drinking each other's blood. And Stanley said, that's barbaric. I don't want anything to do with that, which is a lot of what John 6, 53 sounds like. Except you eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man, you have no life in you. So Stanley rejected it. Well, it wasn't too much longer after that, maybe a couple of weeks, where they were the threat level between this warring tribe and Stanley's expedition was just, I mean, the, the, the tension was just at a peak. And so the, the, the servant or the helper of Stanley asked him again, why don't you make a, a covenant with the chief? And this time Stanley asked a different question. He said, well, what will it benefit me? He said, everything that the chief has is, is, will be yours if you need it. Well, he liked the sound of that. And so after some negotiation, they came to a place where Stanley made a covenant with this chief. And things changed overnight. Part of, this, um, uh, part of the covenant that they made, the first step is giving give gifts. The chief said that he wanted Stanley's white goat. Now, Stanley was in poor health by this time, and about the only thing that he could use for nourishment was goat's milk. And so that's why they tried to take care of this goat really carefully. And now the chief that he's going to make a covenant with or wants to make a covenant with says, that's what I want. And so Stanley, after much hesitation, gave him the goat. And the chief turns around and gives him a seven-foot spear that has copper wound around it. And so Stanley was bummed. He thought, man, I got shafted on this deal. They finished out, the, the had somebody stand in for both the chief and for Stanley. They cut a, a place on their wrists so that they could draw a little bit of blood. Both parties or both substitutes for the, the uh, covenant parties mixed it with some wine or something in there. And so each one of them had a taste of it. It's not the barbaric drink of gallon of blood or anything like that. It's just wine or something like that with a little bit of blood mixed in, a couple of drops of each. 
participants' blood mixed in. And then they set up a memorial. Many times the memorials were planting trees or setting up pillars or stones or something like that. But that was, that was the three-step process. You can break it down to a little bit more, a uh, few m- more steps than just those three, but those are the three essential things. Well, when Stanley left off from that place, that event of making a covenant, he didn't know what he was going to do. He hadn't found Livingstone yet. He still got a, a mandate from his employer, the New York Herald. And he hadn't found Livingstone yet, or Livingston. Uh, he hadn't found him yet. And so he didn't know what he was going to do. But over a period of time, when he would go from one place to the other place, he found out that when he carried that spear, everybody bowed down to him and says, whatever you want, we're here to serve. Because this chief was well known as being a warrior and a warrior over uh, uh, the leader of a warrior tribe and so forth. So Livingston, uh, I'm sorry, Stanley found out that that's the best gift that he could have been given. It opened the door to Africa and almost every part of Africa, and it wasn't too much longer after that that he found Livingston. Now, that's what God's offering Abraham. When God says, and notice God initiates it, he says, I'll make my covenant with you. I'll make my covenant with you. Turn with me over to Genesis chapter 22. Let me show you another thing in Abraham's process. Genesis chapter 22 Verse 1, it came to pass that after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son. This is after Isaac has been born. Isaac's probably 18, maybe 20 years old at the time this takes place, somewhere around there. Mid-teens to late-teens, perhaps. He said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. So it tells about how Abraham and his company start heading for this mountain. Now, I want you to notice specifically what God said to do. He said, offer him as a sacrifice. He did not say kill him. He said, offer him as a sacrifice. Now, you could well understand that it could be interpreted, offer him as a sacrifice to the point of slitting his throat and and on the altar and that type of thing. But that's not what the Bible says. Now, notice also in verse 1, it says that God tempted Abraham. God tempted Abraham. The word tempted there is the word test. And I know a lot of people have a hard time reconciling this because the Bible says God can't tempt anybody with evil, neither is he tempted. James talked about how that that God doesn't use evil to tempt somebody. And I want you to notice something. The question is whether or not Abraham will obey what God said to do. Will he trust God without a clear understanding, without a full understanding of how this is all going to turn out? Will he trust God and do what, he said, told, what God told Abraham to do? That's really the issue. That's the test. The test is, will you obey what the word says to do when it doesn't look like it's in your favor? Will you trust God to make something good out of what you may not be able to explain or foresee? The tithe is a good example, but not just the tithe and not just finances. Every scripture is a test. People ask sometimes, can God tempt man? A lot of times people will look at at situations they're in where evil is at work and they say, well, God's testing me with that. The Bible says God can't test or tempt you with evil. Does God test us? Absolutely. Absolutely. Does he test us with evil, meaning tragedy, hardship, and and sin? No. 
This is a test of obedience for Abraham. Pure and simple. Pure and simple. Now, Abraham does what God tells him to do. They travel three days. And on the third day, verse 4, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide here with the ass, and with an eye and the lad will go yonder and worship, and come again to you. Now, I want you to see what Abraham's already figured out. He knows that in Genesis chapter 15, God made a covenant with him concerning the territory that his seed would inherit. He knows that God made a covenant with him in Genesis chapter 17. First in Genesis 15, second in Genesis 17. And that covenant went even further. That covenant went to the extent of everything that I have is yours and everything you have is mine. But now in Genesis chapter 22, that agreement is going to be put to the test. It's not a test on God's side. But God has to prove that Abraham is willing to honor this covenant to the extreme, to the fullest, if God's going to be able to do what he wants to do with him and his his seed. Abraham knows that God said that Isaac would be the one through through which these seeds, these multiplied millions of people like the stars of the sky are going to be born unto. So Abraham has every opportunity, and, and I think this is a really important point, folks, Abraham took this stuff personally. Abraham thought according to what God said he would do instead of making excuses for why he shouldn't obey. He's clearly come to the point where he realizes, okay, there's two ways this can go. I can take him up to the mountain and offer him as a sacrifice but not take his life as option number one. I hope it goes that way. Or option number two, God's telling me to offer him as a sacrifice on the altar Take his life, shed his blood. But if it's situation or option two, I have to assume that God will raise him from the dead because God said that the seed would come through him. He can't have children if he's dead. So Abraham has thought this out. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us exactly that, that Abraham knew that God was able to to raise Isaac from the dead if necessary. And received him that way in the figure. In other words, as far as Abraham was concerned, one way or another, whether it's a way I've got figured out or something that I'll be surprised by, one way or another, Isaac is coming off that mountain with me. And that's what he tells the servants. Stay here with the stuff. We'll be back. How can you come back if you're offered as a sacrifice? Well, God said that his future is to be the father of nations many nations and so isaac has to live therefore if that's going to take place and that's exactly what happens exactly what happens abraham takes him up onto the mountain abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon isaac his son and went with fire in his hand and a knife and they went both of them together isaac wants to know where's the sacrifice where's the lamb we're going to offer it Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. Now, folks, somewhere along the way, Abraham has to have a conversation with Isaac and say, son, I know this may sound weird, but God told me to offer you as a sacrifice. So we won't need a lamb to kill. You're the lamb. Now, at this point, Abraham is, if Isaac's 18 years old, Abraham's 117. 
If he's older than that, whatever it is, this is 20 years after Abraham hits the 100-year mark. So it's plausible to think that if Isaac doesn't like what he hears from his father, he could overpower his father and go down the mountain on his own. I have to consider that as a possibility, which makes the story even more interesting because Isaac is learning faith from his father because whatever that conversation is, you know as well as I do, that you'd be telling Isaac, if you're in Abraham's position, you'd be telling Isaac, now, wait a minute, son, you need to, you need to keep something in mind. God said that you would be the means whereby the seed would multiply like the stars of the sky. That's got to be you. He said so. God said that it was you. So some way or another, he has to convince Isaac. I'm not saying it was a hard sell. Maybe it wasn't. But he has to convince Isaac to trust God even with your life. Abraham probably is of the opinion that Isaac, if we could turn this around and I'm the one that was offered on the altar, I'd like that better. But God told me to offer you. But regardless, Isaac has to be in on this too. He has to be willing to lay down as a sacrifice. Well, you know the story. Everything takes place up until the last moment. Then the angel calls out and said, Abraham, Abraham, stop. Then God speaks and tells the significance of this. The angel says in verse 12, lay not your hand upon the lad, neither do anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing that thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son from me. That's what this whole thing is about. It's been a test of Abraham's faith. Show God how far he was committed to this. How, how, well, how committed he was. And that opens the door for God to send his son. If Abraham offered his and was willing to go, go through it to the very end, then now his covenant partner, the creator of the universe, is duty-bound, bound by his own words, bound by his own covenant. He's bound to offer his own son for his covenant partner's well-being, which gives him a legal right to bring Jesus into the scene. This is the kind of covenant that the disciples know. They know the history of the law of Moses. They know the history of the Abrahamic covenant. They know the, the history of their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They know that this is part of the deal. They know that this is part of their heritage. They know that Abraham believed God to such an extreme point that he was willing to obey God even when it looked like his child would die. What do the disciples know about blood covenants that we don't know? What did the disciples know about Jesus saying, eat this bread which represents my body and drink this cup which represents my blood? What did they know that kept them from peppering Jesus with questions. Several times 
the New Testament tells us to emulate the faith of Abraham. Abraham is called the father of faith. In other words, that's saying Abraham's example is the one we should follow. Abraham's example is the one we should follow. What does that mean for us? It means that we're supposed to obey the word even when it looks like we can't. I mentioned the tithe as being one of the um, tests that we experience in our Christian life. It doesn't make sense from a natural standpoint. It doesn't make sense to give God 10% of everything you have and expect him to multiply it so you'll have more. Most Christians I know would rather just keep the 10% and try to work it out on their own, come up with their own financial plan because they're afraid of that 10%. They're afraid of that dime on every dollar. There are other situations where people are put to the test concerning their health. Now, I have to be real careful about this because somebody could take this past the point that they should and reject doctors and reject medical health. Help. And I'm not saying that at all. If doctors can help you, by all means, get every help that they can, can give and can bring. But going to the doctor doesn't have anything to do with faith. See, if the doctor prescribes medication or tells me that there's medication that can help, why don't I use what good I can get from it and mix faith with it to get supernatural results? So when you talk about sickness and disease and that type of thing, some people want to go all the way and they'll say something like, well, I'm just going to trust God or die. Folks, you need to understand something. That's not faith. Trusting God or dying is not faith. Trusting God not to die, now that's faith. But some people, and, and usually, I don't know why it works this way, but this is, this is the way that it does work. Usually, it's people that are spiritually mature, they're spiritual adolescents. You know how, how teenagers think they're so smart and know everything better than their parents? But if you can keep them alive long enough, they'll finally figure out how smart you were. I think we've got a lot of spiritual teenagers that hear the truth of the word. They want to believe it absolutely. They want to act on it absolutely. And so they try to throw everything out the window. It's God, only God, and nothing else. And the devil can push you into the ditch on either side of the road. The devil wants to keep you in the ditch where you won't even believe God for anything or he wants, if he can't keep you there, he wants to push you onto the other ditch on the other side of the road into extremism. Folks, faith is not extreme to somebody that's settled in what the word says. It's just automatic. But that was Abraham's test. And I think, you judge this for yourself, but I personally believe that this is why Abraham, uh, why Paul, excuse me, kept using Abraham as an example. Because the church was initially a, uh, a Jewish church. And then as it spread to the Gentiles, Paul talked to the Gentiles about who Abraham was and how he believed God and so forth. Otherwise, how, could, how does Galatians 3 make any sense? The Galatians were a Gentile group of people. When, Abra- when Paul starts talking about Abraham's faith, being the way to, to access 
all the spiritual blessings of, that come as a result of Jesus' sacrifice, how does he know that they're going to know who Abraham is if he hadn't talked to him about him? If he hasn't already taught about Abraham and Abraham's faith as being an example for us, then isn't he writing something to the, to the Galatians that they wouldn't understand? Abraham's faith had to be a part of, of Paul's teaching, the establishment of the church. Well, if it was part of Paul's teaching, and it, it clearly was because of the things that we have record of in the letters that he wrote to the churches of those days, he left us a record of believing in Abraham and operating in the kind of faith that Abraham had too. My point is simply this, folks, and I feel like I've gone around the block a couple of times without making it. But my point is simply this. Abraham came to understand the, the depths of the blood covenant that he had, he had with God. And that's what God wants us to understand. Over and over again, Paul writes to the church and talks about their faith and their love growing exceedingly. When he, when he uh, pats on the back the Thessalonians, Thessalonian church, he says, your faith and love is growing exceedingly to the point where everybody knows it. He gives instructions to the church that those are the things that we should focus on. Growth or development in faith and growth and development of the love of God that's on the inside of us. But what's that faith and that love supposed to do? It's supposed to take us to the place where no matter what God says, no matter what we read in his word, no matter what he speaks to our spirits, we're willing to go even if it looks impossible. And it all comes back to that blood covenant. It all comes back to what Jesus ratified with the shedding of his own blood. When Paul made statements to the church, wrote to us, and said things like, if God didn't withhold his only son, his dear son, his only son, how can he withhold anything else from us? If he's given us his best to fulfill that blood covenant as a once and for all sacrifice, how can he withhold anything from us? That's good. I believe he wants us to take that literally. I believe he wants us to grow in faith to the point where we know. If God's word says it, it doesn't matter what it looks like. If God's word says it, this is it. Even if other people don't understand. Even if our doctors don't understand. No matter what. If his word says it, this is it. Because this covenant that we've got with our heavenly father is ratified with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. How can it possibly fail? It can't. How can it possibly not come to pass? Folks, it it will come to pass. No matter what God has told you, no matter what God has put in your heart, no matter how long it's been or how off track you may think you are from what he said, Every word that God spoke to you and about you will come to pass. It will. I think a lot of times our plans get, well, let me say it in a better way. I think a lot of times we change what we think is possible because of delays. But a delay means nothing. If you've got God's word for something, you've got an eternal promise that can't change. Because Jesus shed his blood. Once and for all, Jesus shed his blood.
Well, I've gone long enough. Let me quit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you are faithful. Father, we believe every word that you've ever spoken to us, every word that's written in the, this book, and everything that you've spoken to our hearts will truly come to pass. Furthermore, Lord, we declare that we believe that every word that we've said, every confession that we've made according to your word or according to what you put in our heart, we believe those words will come to pass too. We thank you, therefore, Father, for working in supernatural and even miraculous ways, if necessary, to fulfill your word in our lives. We thank you, Father, that the prayer of faith saves or heals the sick and that you, Lord, are raising us up. We believe, Lord, just as your word says, that everything we put our hand to prospers in the precious name of Jesus. You've placed us in the same position as Abraham, Father. You've put us to the test. Not the same test, but you've put us to the test concerning your word. We declare that by Jesus' stripes we're healed. We declare that all of our needs are met according to your riches and glory by Christ Jesus. We declare, Father, that every vision, every dream, every goal that you've placed on the inside of us those that are from our spirits, not just thought up something in our heads, but everything that you've placed in our spirit and prompted us toward will be in Jesus' name. We know your promises are yes and amen, Father. So as far as we're concerned, forever your word is established in us. You've made some wonderful promises to us, Lord. We thank you that you're faithful to keep every one of them. And we'll hold steady. We'll not be moved by what we see. We'll not be moved by what we feel. We'll not be moved by how long it's been. We'll hold fast to your word. Knowing that your word will come to pass. In Jesus' name. Can you agree with that? Amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much for being here. Hope we got a little something there that would help you. God's word is true. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being with us. God bless you. Have a great week.